Good morning. I, I make no apologies for what God's word says. It is his word to us. Uh, some are harder to preach, I think, than others. And I make this, it's not even an example. I, I make this explanation about why I enjoy expository preaching so much, like we're doing with our preaching team through this. There are a lot of passages that we would, I, w- I know I would avoid, oh, let's not preach this one, this might be even hard to understand, hard to, uh, hard to receive, but you know, God's word in his entirety is for us, for our edification, for our understanding of him and how he would have us live. And so we turn the page after Paul's good message last week, uh, which, and this is part of the same passage that he preached, part of the same chapter. And sure enough, this is here, and it's something that God wants us to to understand. As we go through this, I'm going to start by reminding us that in all things related to salvation, men and women are equal. We, We come to know God the same way. It is by the grace of Jesus, by his death on the cross, that we, when we put our faith and our trust in him, we are saved by God's grace, not of works, but purely through what God has done for us and through us. And I like to read uh, two verses from 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, 11 and 12. And you're welcome to follow along in your Bibles. Uh, you, you'll also find uh, most, if not all, of these passages on the screen for you as well. But it, it reminds us, nevertheless... In the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. So neither one of us, men or women, are independent. We need each other. Men need women. Women need men. And this passage reminds us that we both belong to God. So... Let's keep in mind that our passage today is not teaching that women are in any way inferior. Men, this is not teaching us to go home, boss our wives around, tell the woman you listen to me now and be quiet, go make me a sandwich. Uh, some of us may not make it back next week if you, if you were to do that. So we, we need to cherish women. Um, we need to remember that God has created them uh, just as he has created us. Paul showed us last week that we should be engaged in evangelical, evangelistic prayer as a church. And then Paul, the apostle, continues that thought, and he goes in here talking about women and how they dress. Now, what, what in the world is the connection between evangelistic prayer and women wearing proper, respectable clothes? So as I keep, try, to, uh, try to answer, keep this thought in mind. It's kind of how I started this, this message. The wisest thing in the world we can do uh, is trust God and trust what God has said. Believe in his word. So we see here in verses 8 and 9, as we move back into the, the Timothy passage, Paul says that he desires in every way that the men should pray. And 
we see that, that verse here, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Men should lead, uh, should lead their churches, lead their families in prayer. doesn't mean that women shouldn't pray, um, but uh, men should lead in that. That is one of their roles. God, God has given men and women different roles in life, in the, in the home, in the family, in church. And then he says, likewise, in verse 9, the women, and then he goes on and gives us these details uh, about starting with their attire, their clothes. And this, this is something that in our t- culture today can come off as very offensive. Uh, I've got to be careful not to stand up here and, and, from my opinion, say, ladies, make sure you dress white, right? That's um, hard to hear. And when I come to difficult passages like this, I like to ask, what's the principle that, uh, that God is trying to get across? So the apostle, through the Holy Spirit guiding him, is trying to tell us. And I think that, I believe, I strongly believe, that there, there's, you see this in the, in the pages here, that church should be a living testimony of the gospel. That we are sinners. We have no way of redeeming ourselves, and the penalty of sin is, is, is death. And that God being merciful and loving, when we had no ability to pull ourselves out of that sin or out of the consequences of that, no ability to redeem ourselves, to do enough good, he sent his son Jesus to the world. Jesus died on the cross, was raised, to the, raised from the grave, and, and as I said, when, when we believe in that and trust in him and him alone for our salvation, he redeems us according to his plan. It's, it's not just that he redeems us, though. It's not just that, okay, I, I got to live this life in sin for however long, and now, um, now all the consequences are gone. He redeems us to be his servants, to no longer live according to sin, but according to his pleasure and the goodness and the righteousness that he has prepared for us. Our lives in the church and how we order ourselves in the church should reflect that God has redeemed us for a, for a reason and that he sanctifies us. He, he, that means that he continues to, to change our hearts and our motives and our desires and our actions to be more like him. He is our Lord and we submit, both men and women, to how he has not ask us how he has told us. This is how you should now, uh, how you should now live. So the church is a living testimony of that gospel, and how we conduct ourselves in every way should point towards that God that has redeemed us and glorify Him. So all of us, men and women, are to be submissive and obedient to Him. Uh, later, Paul is going to go on as we continue in this uh, in this book. He's going to go on in chapter 3 of of 1 Timothy. I'm going to read verses 14 and 15. And he's going to tell us, I hope to come to you soon. Paul was in prison at this time. He's he's hoping that he's going to be able to come and give give Timothy, who he's writing this to, uh, Timothy at the church of Ephesus. He he wants to come to them. But he's he's not sure that he's going to be able to. So I, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. All the things that he is writing in, in Timothy here, we have this context, it is in the household of God. 
He says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. We, we need to stand for the truth and proclaim that truth that God has given us in his word. So Timoth- uh, Paul wants Timothy to know how the church should behave. How men and women particularly behaved and acted was at the, the highest importance in his thoughts. We see that in Titus. Um, the, the next, uh, well, not the next book of the Bible was 2 Timothy. Just simple math will tell you that. But if you go to Titus after that, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, you're going to hear some of the same language here. It says, uh, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober minded, dignified, self controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. That's how older men should behave. Older women, in verse 3, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So, so that we don't slander the word of God, so that we don't uh, become bad witnesses of what God has said, we are a living testimony of the gospel. And part of that means living out what God's word tells us. Be submissive to God as Lord. And as we submit to him, we see here in these verses that God has given men and women distinct roles. I submit to you that we don't submit to Jesus as Lord when we tell him, Jesus, you are my Lord, you are my Savior. Uh, Now listen to me, here's how I'm going to behave. It's the reverse. We listen to him. And every church, I believe, and every home that takes the gender roles that God has given us and reverses them contradicts Scripture. So what are those roles? And he he tells us in in our passage today, in verse 8, that men should pray. This is specifically evangelistic prayer. And like I said, this doesn't mean that women shouldn't pray. It doesn't mean that women shouldn't pray evangelistically any more than the next verse in verse 9 telling women to have self-control. That doesn't mean that men should not have self-control as well. But men should lead in this type of prayer that we learned about last week. So then why does Paul give Timothy after that a laundry list of behavior for women? I think there's three possible reasons. In fact, I don't even think there are three possible reasons. I think each one of these reasons uh, carries some weight. One, and this is speculation, but one, I think it's possible that the men in the Ephesus church may not have been leading the way that they should. And so Paul is reminding them of their leadership responsibilities. I think it's very likely, and, and Paul talked about this a little bit last week, I think it's very likely that the women were looking and acting, behaving more like the fallen culture that they saw around themselves than how women should behave in, in the church of God. And then one thing that is not speculation, we do know that there was a lot of false teaching going around in the early church. You see it in almost every, every epistle. So I think that you know, Paul is making sure the women are doing and acting and looking as we would expect people that have belonged to God do, that, that men are taking their leadership 
and, and, and following through with that, and that the type of false teaching around these issues that may have been happening, that he's making sure that that is corrected. And as we then look at these specifics, the principle that Paul is giving here is humility. Prayer, proper prayer, humbles a man. Um, think about it. We bow in prayer. We ask our Father for help. And if we're doing it right, we're admitting to God or anyone else that may be listening that there is something that we know we can't do as men, that we are not enough. And men like to be self-sufficient. And when we're not, it, it is humble, but we need God. We rely on him. And this may come as a surprise, but women have pride too. And it can come out, and I emphasize that word, it can come out in their appearance. This means that every woman um, has um, an issue of a false pride in their, in their appearance, but that is a way that it can manifest itself. So uh, he's making sure that men and their responsibilities are having the humility that comes from, from belonging to Christ, and women do as well. Uh, Paul is not the only apostle that makes these exact same points, especially when it comes to how we adorn ourselves, how women adorn th themselves. I'm going to read briefly from 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, and you're going to see a lot of the same, uh, same information. Peter says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Then he says, do not let your adorning be external. Some of the same language that Paul was giving us. He says specifically, by the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And then verse 7, he says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So Peter here is also warning against showy dress. Uh, I think it's beautiful. He, he's, and this, this is a principle that would apply to men and women, but to women he is specifically saying uh, the beauty that God looks upon is, is, is in your heart. You put on good works. Put on the grace of God. That's how you should adorn, how you, how you should decorate yourselves. And I read through verse 7 because I think passages like these, uh, I think men can have a tendency to take passages like these and begin to have a heavy hand with their wives. But he tells us, husbands, uh, live with our wife in an understanding way. We're to show honor to them. And there is a very chilling warning to us that if we don't do that, then God may not hear our prayers. That's, that's how precious he holds women in his eyes. So then we take that in mind and we come back again to Timothy and we see that men and women are both being humbled. Men in prayer, women in dress. 
And, and a thought that comes up here, a question is, does it truly matter how a person dresses? Yeah, there's two extremes there. Before I even go into those extremes, since Paul and, the, and Peter both, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has told us to take care of how we dress, I think the answer is yes, it does matter how we dress. Some, though, will take a very legalistic approach. We, we become, can become like a Pharisee in our thinking. Uh, we need to be careful not to uh, come to our church next week and you know, nail to our door out there a long list of do's and don'ts. For one, it's glass, so that will probably shatter. Um, but we, we take that, that list in, in, our, in our minds and we apply it to our culture. And I have heard of churches that have very long extra-biblical Examples of, well, don't do this, do this, don't do this, don't uh, do this. We've got to be careful not to be legalistic. But the other extreme, I, I said, God looks on the heart. There are verses, uh, several verses I could go to. First Samuel was one of them that, I, that I nearly did. So well, let's, let's just move on through Timothy. Um, how God looks upon the heart. That, that's where he sees true beauty. So it doesn't matter at all what you dress. And that's not that's not correct either. I think the answer lies somewhere in the middle. I'm not going to give you a long list, but I'll give you one example. Um, ladies, I think that it would be wrong for you to show up to church services. Remember, this, this is in the context of church worship, corporate worship. Don't show up wearing the tiniest bikinis that you can fit on your body. If that sounds like um, I'm holding women to a different standard than I hold Men and myself, I also think it would be wrong for me to show up next Sunday in a tiny bikini. So it's not a double standard, I promise. He tells them in verse 9 to have respectable apparel with modesty, with self-control. So in, in our worship services, what clothing is fitting? Don't mean what clothing fits, do that too. But what, what clothing is right for us to wear? Notice that it is the woman's personal responsibility. He says women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel. So the husband doesn't dress the wife. The husband doesn't tell her what to wear. Wives, you can say, hey, does this look okay on me? Men, if you see that they are not dressing appropriately, you can say something. But it is their, it is their responsibility to dress the right way. That's how they are adorning themselves. The idea here is, uh, part, part of it is to not draw attention to yourself. In worship services, our focus should be on God and worshiping Him. That's also not an argument for you to dress as absolutely plainly as you can. Um, I listened to some sermons, and I, um, here's a, almost a direct quote from one person that I heard. His name is uh, Richard Caldwell. He said, ladies, if you wear a burlap sack to church the attention will most definitely be on you. We, we don't dress down either, but we make sure that the way that we're dressing is not uh, flamboyant. It's not something where every eye is going to be on me. Every eye in the church should be on Christ. It shouldn't even be on the man. It should be on Christ. So this verse here is about modesty and self-control. What about... 
the fashion of today. Fashion always changes, right? That's why we're not all wearing bell bottoms this morning. As styles change in culture, as long as, uh, I, I got a list of three things, and they're, they're quick. If, if that style is not inappropriate in some way, not sexually suggestive, and not putting the attention on yourself, dress with the times. It's fine. Uh, what about the braids? That, th- this verse here, uh, he tells us, uh, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Uh, Let's look at the context here. In Rome, when this was happening, one thing that was happening, one thing that would happen is that wealthy women, I I learned, would flaunt that wealth and draw all the eyes on themselves by literally taking precious jewels and precious stones and weaving them through their hair. It was literally the word that Paul uses in these verses, costly attire. And this was a time where there was also great poverty. So they would come to church uh, in other areas, but they would come to church and their wealth was on full display for other people to see. So uh, let me read verse 10. It says, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works? Instead of showing their outward wealth, showing how great they can dress up, what Paul is wanting them to do is to pay attention to the work that they do. Uh, he tells us in, uh, later on in this, in this book, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 10, what some of those good works should be. Um, and this is in a passage that we'll go over in a few weeks. But he tells us, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having... A reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So I don't think, I honestly don't think that it is, that, that, that um, jewelry, for instance, is evil. I don't think even that braids are evil, but flaunting our wealth, flaunting ourselves in front of of a congregation, that would be wrong. So let's move on to verses 11 and 12 here in 1 Timothy. He tells us, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Hard word. I told you this was hard to preach. (laughs) I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, men, I told you not to go home and tell your, tell your wives, be, be quiet, woman. Um, what, what is happening here? Well, first off, it is something that I think is hard to hear in our culture, although, to be honest, this may be hard to hear in any culture. Uh, but in our culture today, one of the goals that you see out there is we're trying to make men more like women, and we're trying to make women more like men. And yet, we have a God that has designed us to be different and distinct. Paul here is discussing women in learning, women in teaching, women and authority. So he tells us in verse 11 that she is to learn. That that probably seems obvious to us today. Of course, Christian women should learn about, about God. It was not so obvious 
to the early church, especially uh, churches that were coming from a Jewish background. Not, not that the Roman times there held women in any higher esteem, but most first century rabbis, something else I learned as I was studying this, refused to teach women. It was not their, it was not their job. It was not their responsibility. So when I say that this is counter to our culture, it was also counter to the culture that received it initially. God's word is timeless. His truths are timeless. And he does not have to change. Well, wow, the culture's changed. I guess that what I said doesn't apply anymore. It still does. But then as we go into the details, what, what does he mean? What, what does Paul mean when he says she should learn quietly in all submissiveness? Now, again, remember, this is in the context of public worship. He's not talking about Bible studies, growth groups, discussion groups, sharing testimonies. But when engaged in the public worship and teaching of the Bible, when that has taken place, a woman is to be a learner, to be teachable. Um, and I would submit to you that the same is true of, of, of men. We need to be learnable. We need to be teachable as well. And I want to pause again here and remind us that women are important to God. They're important to mankind's spirituality. You can read through the Old Testament and the New Testament and see where God has esteemed women and given them great roles, even in the plan of salvation. I'm going to be arguing in a few moments that men failing in biblically ordained spiritual leadership leads to massive problems, and it leads to women wanting to take the man's role because they see it not taking place. Um, but here in verse 11, we see that women learn quietly in submission. It doesn't mean complete silence. In appropriate settings, like I said, she can pray, she can share. One thing that she is not supposed to do is we see teaching, learning, authority combined here in these verses. She's not to publicly dispute the teaching of the men that God has um, has ordained to give the teaching. The Greek word here, I'm not going to even try to pronounce the Greek word. I don't even know what the Greek word is. I just know this from what I've read and heard. The Greek word here means, for, for, for silence, means to stop striving against. So, uh, oh, I'm not sure that I, I may have an issue with that. Stop striving against what the word of God is saying here. It's used in other places, like um, when Peter in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, when Peter is explaining that, oh, wow, looks like God is saving the Gentiles as well. Even better yet, it looks like we can, we can eat bacon now. Go read Acts chapter 11. I promise you it's true. Uh, that's something to praise God for, definitely. <laughs> he, he tells them when they heard these things, no, sorry, the Bible tells us when they heard these things, they fell silent, same word. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So notice that they were silent, and at the same time they were glorifying God with their words. So it doesn't mean complete, utter silence. Back to Timothy, back to verse 12. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. So... This is showing us that women shouldn't teach in a public assembly in a way that takes over the authority of male leadership. I believe this does, to answer the question that may be on your minds, I believe this does clearly argue 
against them teaching and preaching the Bible in a worship service. But God can still use a woman. No, I'm reading that like a statement. It's a question in my, in my notes. Can God use a woman to teach a man in, in, some, other, uh, in some other setting? And Acts is a, is a great place to get a lot of how we should act as well. The answer is yes. Uh, if you look at Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 26. Tells us now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he taught and spoke accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Apollos, it tells us here he was a good speaker. He knew the scriptures. He knew of Jesus. And what he taught, he taught accurately. But then, because he did not have complete knowledge, Priscilla and Aquila, who were a wife and a husband, um, took him aside and explained it to him. They were submissive to his teaching. They didn't stop him. Whoa, 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 Paulus, come on, slow, slow down. Uh, let me tell you a thing or two. They waited until afterwards. They didn't publicly call him out. Not only was um, the wife, Priscilla, here having a role in this uh, correcting of the man, she's even mentioned first here in the narrative. So, uh, you have a, maybe I don't have complete knowledge here this morning, and uh, you're a woman, and you say, oh, I think I need to talk to Scott about that. All right, it's fine, let's talk. Pull me aside afterwards, let's talk. Let's not stand up in the, in the, in the service and say, whoa, 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 that, that's an error. Let, let's, let's, let's fix this right now. Um, I've actually seen that happen in a church before. Um, so this is not just me coming up with random things that might happen. This, this has happened uh, before. Not to me, but I've, I've seen it happen. So verse 12 here doesn't rule out a woman ever contributing to the spirituality of the church doesn't even rule out teaching in certain settings. I mentioned some life groups would be one. That's not a, that's not a conclusive list. Uh, this morning, we had a prayer service. We had a, um, we have a prayer service. Please come at 9.30 and pray with us. And then we have uh, coffee and donuts afterwards and maybe some other things. Um, and many of the women prayed with us. That was beautiful. It was, it was, it was encouraging to see God's uh, God's people, men and women, speaking up. And it was in the sanctuary. And, and it, wasn't, um, it wasn't a bad thing at all. So we, we need to keep this in the context of the, the corporate worship service. And, and why? Why is this the case? The answer is it, it is because it is God's design. That design is headship. Headship means authority. And we are all under authority. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, Paul writes to the Corinth church, But I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ. So men have, uh, let me just read it. The head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. It's God's plan. 
It's God's design, and it does not diminish the value of a woman. Uh, if you think that it does, then you had to see this as demeaning or diminishing to Jesus as well, because uh, the woman's, the wife's, I should say, uh, authority here is the husband. The husband's authority is Christ. And we believe and we preach and we proclaim truthfully that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are, are all God and are all equal to each other. And yet Christ has put himself under the authority of God the Father. It doesn't make him lesser than God the Father, but the head of Christ is God. This is God's design. So how do we preach a message like this? It's because the Bible does not have to give in to our preconceived notions of how things should be. It's God's will. It's God's truth. And it's important to hold in our minds it doesn't diminish women. So men, if we read these verses in Timothy or any of the other verses drawing out different roles for men and women that we've read today, and then we begin to think of women as lesser than us, think of them as second-class believers, uh, or even think of them as, as our servants that need to um, follow our every single whim, uh, we lord ourselves over them, then we are not honoring women like we learned in First Peter that we should, that we must. And also, as we move on here, man, we're going to see if we're not being spiritual leaders in the church, especially spiritual leaders at home, then we are failing both our wives and our church. And that brings us uh, to verses 13 and 14. Paul takes us to the creation account to explain why there should be male leadership. He says that Adam was formed first and then, and then Eve. So, so what, is, what is the timeline there? Then you see uh, up on our slide here we have verses... Uh, uh, part of the Timothy chapter, and we have part of the Genesis chapter. I'm going to read the Genesis account. So what, what's happened here is God has created man. God has given Adam instruction. He's told him, don't eat of the fruit of the tree. And uh, then he saw that Adam needed a helper. It wasn't right for him to be alone. So he created Eve for him. And then um, you come to verse, uh, uh, verse 15 in Genesis 2. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So he's been given, he's been given this instruction here. And it, it tells us that Sorry, I lost my place here. It tells us something, I promise you. And we're going to find out what that is in just a second. <laughs> um, it tells us that man was not made for woman. That woman was made for man. Uh, there's another verse, I'm not going to read it, but go out and read 1 Corinthians 11 at some point. Uh, there's a verse there that tells us that, that the woman is the glory of man. Um, okay, so God created us, and then... Uh, he, made, he made man first. He formed woman. And, and as we read these verses, the woman was deceived. But why, uh, other than because it's God's design, why male, male headship? Uh, let me point out here, by the way, uh, there's a thought 
that you can find out there that this is God's design because of the fall, but he put Adam in charge before the fall. So this has been his timeless design. It's not just because or even because of the sin that took place. It's timeless. Well, you look at verse 14 in Timothy. Uh, Paul tells us, tells us, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So he's pulling that from, uh, from Genesis. Um, stop there for a second, and then I'll read the, the Genesis uh, verses. Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. Man, she was, she was tricked. So easy, wasn't it? It's easy to give Eve a hard time here. And I, and I have, and, and, I, and I do. But bear in mind, there's so many verses we can go to. Romans shows us that Paul squarely, Paul under, um, under inspiration from the Holy Spirit, squarely puts the blame of the fall on Adam's shoulders. So he was deceived, yes. But what we're going to see here is that Adam failed the leadership role that God had given him and willfully sinned. So if you read the account of Genesis uh, Genesis chapter 3, you'll see that the serpent went to the woman, not to the man. The serpent deceived, uh, disputed God's word. And then here in verse 6 of Genesis, we see, so, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. And here's... Here's the part that really hurts men. Some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Where's Adam? He was with her. So worse, I think, than what Eve did. Here's what Adam did. He wasn't deceived, remember. Um, uh, Genesis tells us that. First Timothy tells us that. So she was, he was not deceived like Eve was. And he was with her. So this tells us that Adam... Watch this interaction between her and the serpent. Didn't say anything. Um, didn't intervene. He let his wife eat of the fruit that God had told him, in the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. And then what's worse, all right, I'll, I'll have some myself. He ate it as well. And so you know the story. God comes into the garden, and he's looking for Adam. Where are you? Not that God didn't know where Adam was, but he's looking for Adam, and... As they, they come out, and they, they um, said they hid themselves. And as Adam is trying to account for what he's done, in, in verse 12, you see the first instance uh, recorded. Uh, logic tells us the first instance ever of blaming shift, shift blaming. Telling somebody, it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. Adam's pretty audac uh, has some audacity here. He, he shifts the blame to both God and to Eve. He says... Uh, it says, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and, and I ate. So, I uh, can't imagine telling God that, well, yeah, I wouldn't have, but you know what you did. Here's, here's, here's what happened because of that. Because of their sin, we still suffer consequences. Uh, you see, and that's all that we're going to read from Genesis today, but you can, you can read through how God is explaining the fall that has taken place, the, the curse of sin, the sinful, natural tendency of a woman is to reject male leadership. 
the sinful natural tendency of man, I think there's actually two, because you see this happening in two different directions. One, you see them becoming authoritative and abusive and controlling. There's a difference between leadership and, um, and, and controlling abusive behavior. But you also see them being like Adam, where Adam stepped aside and showed no leadership at all in this instance. None of those tendencies of the man or of the woman are from God. Had Adam been the leader God called him to be, the fall would not have taken place. Or at least it would not have taken place in the way that it did. And Adam and Eve are typical of what happens when our roles as men and women are reversed. Women in any church proclaiming independence from men undermine God's authority. And the same goes for men in any church who do not fulfill the leadership roles that God is placing them into. And then finally, we now we come to the hardest verse, but would you look at the time? Maybe we should just uh, save that for Ray next week. Are you, would you write this? Verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Okay. So what possible connection can there be between childbearing and salvation? Can't wait for Ray to explain that next week. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, notice here, uh, first off, she, singular, would be, will be saved if they, plural, continue in faith. There, there, there's a few ways that you may hear this, this verse interpreted. And for the sake of time, I, it's not really important. I, I, there's some of them that I find so uh, without merit, scripturally or even logically, I'm not even going to bother sharing them. I, I've got my uh, older list of notes. If you're curious, come to me. I'll, I'll, I'll share them with you. There's two that uh, I think can be compelling. Uh, the first is that the option, first is the option that I... Um, I thought, where my thoughts were focused for many years, which will kind of give you a spoiler alert. I'm kind of leaning into the second uh, possibility. But I'll share the first. Uh, the idea is that the childbirth being referred to here might refer to the birth of Jesus. If it fits the grammar, she, singular Eve, will be saved through the birth of Jesus, and they, Christian women, will be saved through faith. And one other possible reason is it also fits the narrative of Genesis, where we didn't read the verses, but you see in there the idea that the seed of Eve would become Christ and that he would redeem people from their sins. So it makes sense and it, it, it helps, keeps us from having to try and equate childbirth through, for, uh, with salvation. I don't think any woman wants that. Um, but I'm not, as I, as I consider that to be my position for many years, I, there's a few places in my mind where it fell apart, and, and I just did my best to not think about that. Um, it, for one, it's, it's odd that Paul would be referring to Eve this way. He's talking, he has brought up Eve in the narrative, in, in, the, in, the, in the letter, and yet he comes, he then goes back to women, and then if he were to refer to Eve, why would he not say Eve? 
Why would he refer to her in the future tense? She'll be saved one day, even though uh, this happened centuries and centuries ago. So now my mind lends itself more towards the other possibility that also fits the grammar and possibly fits the context here a little bit better. As I share it, let's understand that salvation is an ongoing work. There's other perhaps troubling verses in the Bible that tells us to work out our salvation with fear and with trembling. It's true that when, uh, when we come to Jesus, when he draws us to him, we are saved once and for all when our faith has been placed in him. But the Bible also talks of this as an ongoing process. Uh, we're, we're saved, then we're sanctified, which is one of those great church words. It means that he's making us more like him, more like he wants us to be. And ultimately, at the resurrection, at the final resurrection, we are glorified. And, and that is when in the future we are truly saved. Believers, though, are sanctified throughout their life, like I said, being made more in the image of Christ, growing in the Lord, growing in knowledge. And childbearing here, I believe, represents a woman's possible good works. Now remember, we, we've said this earlier today, we're all saved by grace. Those of us that, that are saved, we're saved by grace through faith not of works. You cannot do enough good to overcome the sin that has been in your life. We're all God's workmanship created in Jesus Christ to do the good works that follow salvation. I'm, just not, I'm not just pulling this out of the air either. Ephesians 2. Uh, read it sometime if you never have. It's great. Saving faith comes first. And then God gives us good works in our lives to perform and one of the reasons for those good works is not to save us, but to show us and to show others that we have been saved. So I'm not saying here that all saved women, all Christian women believers, will be married or have children. I'm not saying, it's not saying here that women without children are any lesser than those that have them or they have any fewer good works. Uh, it's not even saying that a woman is saved by having babies and raising them. Like I said, this is one possible path of sanctification for a woman that is on her way to the glorification that takes place at the resurrection. The New Testament teaches us that good works are proof that God has saved us. And Paul here is drawing out differences between men and women. And as he's doing that, he is using childbirth as a good work that only a woman can do. It's an obvious difference between them. He's, he's still making sure that we understand that there are differences between us, different roles, different possibilities. So it's highlighting those clear differences between, between us. He's going to go on in chapter 5. And remember that I'm, I'm saying here that this these good works that a woman can do, one of them, one of the possible things they can do and how they express themselves is through childbearing. And in chapter 5, he's, he's given the church instructions for taking care of widows. Um, and he tells them, let a widow be enrolled, in verse 9 and 10, let a widow be enrolled in, in, into the care for her. If she is not less than 60 years of age, have him in the wife of one husband, 
and having a reputation for good works. What are those good works? He says, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. Paul, back in chapter 2, could have said that she will be saved through showing hospitality if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. But that would not have made that distinction between men and women clear. And again, inspired by God, Paul is showing us God's design, that we are different. And that is right, and that is good. And God loves us equally, even as he has given us different jobs and different strengths and different weaknesses. So godly women should not reject the uniqueness that God has granted them. Godly men should not shirk their responsibilities. Verse 15 here about childbearing is being driven by the same things that the previous verses today have, that there are different roles, different ways of of being submissive to God, and some same ways of being submissive to God. And it's not teaching that salvation is, is by works. In fact, look at the language there in verse 15. Um, she will be saved if they continue in faith and truth. Paul here is assuming that the women that will receive these instructions are already Christian women. He's showing how a mature female believer being taught and sanctified by God should act and behave and dress and, and live her life before the Lord. He's showing that men should, among other things, continue in the evangelistic prayer and leadership. Likewise, that women should continue in modesty and self-control. All of us should be humble, submitting to God's authority over us and plan for us. And that those of us that know him or will come to know him are saved by grace. And so we should continue in the good works in keeping with who God has made you to be. I'll end with this. Have we trusted in Christ? If so, we can trust in what he has said in his word.